Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, his, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, um, we come to you this morning looking at this text and even seeing the way in those last verses um, that you see us and hear and respond and are working salvation. Uh, And we come then just in an open confession, God, we need you. God, I need you this morning. God, we all need you. We need you to Um, Do a a great work in our lives to fill us with faith and trust in you. Um, We need you to help us to have the courage to obey you in the situations that we're in in our own lives and to trust your word. God, we need you to to crack through the hardness of our hearts to see that, Jesus, you are Savior, that you are good, that you are at work in this world, that we can trust you, that you want to save us. God, we need you to open up our eyes to this text. I need you to help me preach it. (laughs) Lord, we just come to you and we confess our need, but we come in the confidence that you are the God who hears, who sees, who is acting, and who loves us. So in the name of Jesus, we come now. Amen. Well, we're in our third week in the study of the book of Exodus. And what we've learned so far is that Exodus comes after Genesis. First two books of the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus. There's 66 books in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. Uh, This is book two of the story of what God's doing in this world to save human beings from their sin. Beautiful, beautiful story. Unreal story. Uh, Genesis um, is the first part of, of that story, and Exodus really begins with an and we've learned. It's just a continuation of that story, and you know this happens now. And what We've learned from Genesis as we've looked at that story is that God is a beautiful and a glorious God. And the God of the Bible is one who's made this world and created it um, in, its, in its goodness uh, as an overflow of his own love and his goodness. But this world has a problem. It's human sin. It's our rebellion against him. It's our unwillingness to trust him and to obey him. And as we turn away from him, we keep doing this stuff that wrecks one another's lives and wrecks this world that he's put us in and breaks our relationship off with him. And and God, in the story of Genesis we've been learning, has been acting to redeem this world, to deal with human sin, to to fix what's been so badly broken by human sin. And he started that work in an interesting way, by beginning a relationship with a family. It's his work of redemption. It's really what Genesis is mostly about, God beginning his work of redemption with a particular family. I'm going to move this back because I'm realizing I can't see all of you up there. Hi, guys. And this family has a name, the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham is the one that God first starts to work with and make promises to, and then through Abraham to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his sons, and then on to their descendants. And his plan and his purpose is, I'm going to start a relationship with you guys. I'm going to bring you to a relationship of obedience and love with me. And I'm going to use you to bless the world around you as I multiply you into a great nation and put you in a particular place. 
And in the beginning of the book of Exodus, as it picks up that story, we see, oh, look, there's God fulfilling his promises. The people that were a small family have now grown into this multitude of a people. It's amazing. And they're fertile and they're growing in this place in the region of Egypt at the north of the Delta. But last week, in the midst of that beautiful story of God's work of redemption, we hit a snag. We hit a problem. And we see that to God's work of life in this world, there's an enemy and there's an opponent who's working death. And the enemy is using, in this story, Pharaoh. Pharaoh who's waging war of death now against God's purposes of redemption and life. That's a problem. We see that this Pharaoh, he's now taken this family and they're not going the direction that we thought that they would. They're now enslaved. And there's actually a state-sponsored genocide where even the average Egyptian is being called in to participate, to grab the Hebrew boys, if you see them, and throw them in the river. Like it's, it's a horror it's difficult to imagine. It must have been a time, if you put yourself in the descendant of Abraham's shoes, a time of intense agony, of tears, of questions, wondering, where is God? God, God, I thought you made promises to my family. What's happening right now? Have you forgotten us? In Christ City, we're in chapter 2 this morning, and we're in chapter 2 in a way that is similar, I think, to that, that pre-dawn light. You know when you get up really early and you watch the light come before the dawn arrives? Chapter 2 is like that pre-dawn as we see that, that God is at work. There's a twilight that's happening, anticipating the fullness of what he's going to do in redemption. And chapter 2, in that way, it reminds us that even in our darkest moments in our own lives, in the suffering in this world, that despite all of our questions, God is a God who's never stopped working. He is a God who is ahead of us, going far before us, preparing all that we need as he works our, our salvation. So we're going to look at this in In chapter 2, we're going to look at it specifically as we look at Moses' life, his life prior to God calling him to be the deliverer. And we'll see in his rescue, uh, in the way that he attempts some work of deliverance himself, and the way that God stands forward as Savior, the way that God is at work even in these darkest moments. So three points this morning. A rescue, a deliverer, and our Savior. It's really an amazing story. And as we jump in then to our first point of rescue, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're just going to walk through it little by little, unpacking it and kind of stopping and seeing and savoring the beauty of what's going on and how God's working in this story. But to put it in context, just remember that chapter one, it ends with the bleakest verse of all in chapter one so far. Not a resolution of the suffering, but an escalation of the suffering God's people experienced. And the verse says this, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That was the last verse we looked at last week. But it's precisely here in the pitch black of the suffering that they were experiencing that we begin to see the light of God's salvation dawn. As we turn the page and look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi, 
he went and he took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. I mean, what a time to have a baby boy. Can you imagine that? What a time to have a baby. It's a time of state-sponsored genocide. And yet Jochebed, we learn that's her name in chapter 6, Jochebed has a boy. And here this mother full of love holds her child. And she looks at him, she sees that he's beautiful. He's a fine boy. She loves her son. And she decides to hide him away. You know, she's upheld for us in Hebrews chapter 11 as a model of faith and courage. And she just does the beautiful human thing, doesn't fear Pharaoh, fears God, and saves the life of her baby. She hides him away. But if you've had an infant, if you've been around infants, hiding them isn't so easy. <laughs> she can't hide him forever. And in verse 3 we read, when she could hide him no longer... I'm surprised it lasted three months. Must be one of those quiet children. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and she placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. It's a wild story. Just birthed out of desperation. And we don't really know what her intentions were uh, in, in putting him in this little basket in the, the reeds. Um, we don't know, maybe she knew that Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river periodically in this area and she hoped that, well, the Egyptians sometimes adopt kids that aren't their own. Maybe, we don't know. Maybe it was just that the idea of sending him away in the basket down the Nile and trusting him to the providence of God was a lot easier than having a soldier come one day and snatch him from her arms. We don't know. But we do know that even here, there's some foreshadowing happening in a beautiful way of what God was already at work doing in salvation. Because that word for basket, that you read in your text, it's the same word that we read in Genesis 6 for ark, as in Noah and his ark. Isn't that interesting? He's put in a little ark. And actually just like the ark's covered in pitch and bitumen, this basket's covered. I think what we're meant is to draw an, an analogy, a parallel to what God was doing at the ark. Because what God did with Noah's family at the ark is that he preserved all of his purposes of redemption in this world at a time of great evil by preserving a family in an ark to continue to fulfill his promises. And here is Moses in a basket that's an ark entrusted to God. Vulnerable as a child and all of God's purposes of redemption resting with him as he floats down the river. It's beautiful. He's kept safe. And as he floats down the river, there's a courageous little girl who watches. Man, you got to love Miriam in the story. This, this is Moses' older sister. Running behind is the as the basket bobs along and watching to see what would happen. Verse 4 says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
this story, I just want to pause and, as an aside. This story is so beautiful. And I think we're meant to read the stories of Exodus slowly and reflectively because they're so beautiful. There's so much going on, so much that God's showing us in them just moment by moment as we unpack it. I'm going to keep going. What did she see? Miriam, she sees in verses 5 to 6, she sees the daughter of Pharaoh come down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river and she saw the basket among the reeds. That's Pharaoh's daughter now, so the basket among the reeds. Miriam's, Miriam's watching it all, but Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket. And she sent her servant woman and she took the basket. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. I love that. She sees Moses crying and God works through the image and the likeness that he put in Pharaoh's daughter to respond as he created her to respond to the cry of a baby. To take pity. To have mercy. She knows her father's command. And yet she defies him in her courage, responding to the pity that God has placed within her human heart for this child. And Miriam sees what's going on. She picks her moment carefully as she watches what is happening. And she jumps into action. <laughs> she seizes the moment. This girl is amazing. She becomes a prophetess of God later in the story, by the way. And then this story, or this sister, Miriam, she said, Miriam, she said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and shall I call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse a child for you? <laughs> I can get involved here. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, in chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. <laughs> so the girl went and she called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and, and nurse him for me. And I'll pay you. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. He doesn't realize that God's taking care of the whole thing. So the woman took the child and she nursed him. I love the irony here. This is, this is beautiful, beautiful irony. Pharaoh pays to nurse the baby who would deliver his slaves. God's at work. And it's beautiful the way that it happens. I mean, you got to imagine Jochebed with Miriam running home. She didn't have any hope that she'd see her son again. And yet by God's grace, she can nurse this baby. I'm sure it would have been a painful moment when he was weaned and she brings him back, but she got to see him and hold him and know him and pray over him. And then in 2.10 we read, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And there's a pun here that I think is beautiful in itself and it speaks to Pharaoh's daughter's courage and defiance because Moses, if you think of some of the, the, the names um, that you might know of, of ancient Egyptians, like Tutmosis, uh, it means son. Moses can mean son in Egyptian. And yet it also means drawn out in Hebrew. So I got I to gotta smile and think of Pharaoh's daughter, knowing exactly what she's done, and given Moses a double name. What a story. It's beautiful in, in every line. And it shows us that before God delivered Israel, even far 
before God delivered Israel. He was already at work in the darkest moments delivering the deliverer. And as we've already seen, the story is told in such a beautiful way, showing us his character and his goodness, even in who he uses to accomplish his purposes. In the darkness of Pharaoh's genocide, God's working and he's showing the beauty, I think, of his own character in these glimpses, in these moments where his character shines through the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jochebed and of Miriam and of Pharaoh's daughter and before them in the midwives in chapter one. It's glorious. Uh, a few weeks back, I took the kids um, to a uh, monastery in Mission. There's a monastery, if you've not gone, it's pretty great, called Westminster Abbey. Not the Westminster if you're from the UK, uh, but it's still pretty great. And um, there's a sanctuary there you can go see, and the stained glass is unbelievable. So we were there on a bright day. The, star, the sun was just shining through in exactly the right moment. And we stood there and we watched in awe as all the colors and the vibrancy just filled up that whole beautiful sanctuary. Kind of like this theater. Just kidding. The church is the people, guys. It's not the building, okay? Uh, <laughs> but as I, as I read this story and as I read through it again um, and again in preparation this week, I, I couldn't help but reflect that stained glass is a really good illustration for who we're meant to be as God's people in this world. I think it shows us the way that even though we're frail and brittle like glass, even though we live in a world of darkness full of sin and suffering, God is the sort of God who loves to shine his character through our faith into the darkness of this world. It's beautiful. And just like glass is brittle, God delights to shine through people, not in strength, but in weakness. He's doing it again in this story. He uses three women plus the two midwives before, not because they're strong, but because they're ordinary, because of their faith in him, because of their courage to obey. I think that ought to be an encouragement to us in our own lives. You are not too small, too weak, too insignificant to be used by God in profound ways. What he's calling you to is to trust him, to obey him, to serve him in the simple and faithful ways that he's called you to in your lives. I think already in this first episode, we see the twilight of God's salvation dawning in Moses' rescue. But we see that twilight of God's rescue continue as Moses grows up. So look with me now at our second point, a deliverer, and look at verse 11. There we read this. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. And he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. All right, so Moses has grown up. Um, Have you guys seen the Prince of Egypt, by the way? Hands up. You guys got to watch it again in preparation for this uh, this sermon series. I wanted to this week, but my kids wouldn't let me. Like, I don't want to watch it again. I'm like, come on, it's a great, we got to watch it over again. Um, And I've been singing it all week, actually. My wife wanted me, she asked me, can you sing on Sunday? I said, no, I don't think I'll sing on Sunday. Um, But the Prince of Egypt gets this moment, I think, in in, uh, Moses' life really, really right. If you watch the story, there's this real awareness of Moses growing up in Pharaoh's home and growing up as an Egyptian. He's a boy who was rescued when he was an infant, and he's now been raised in the palace. 
And he's learned the language and the writing and the culture of Egypt, the religion of Egypt. His wealth and power and affluence afforded to him by virtue of his position. And you can imagine him that I think in this really jarring way that the movie gets really right, and I think we're supposed to, to see in this moment, there's a question in his own heart. Am I the son of Pharaoh or am I the son of Abraham? Am I the son of Pharaoh or am I the son of Abraham? I'm, there's a, a, a tornness. And yet as the days go by and he gets older, he begins to realize he doesn't truly belong in Pharaoh's palace. And so he goes out and he sees his own people. The text actually doesn't call it his own people. It's more intimate than that. Uh, the text in a beautiful way says that Moses went out to see his brothers. This boy raised in Pharaoh's palace as an Egyptian goes to see his brothers. And when does he witness? He sees the power of his adopted family exercise in cruelty against the weakness of his biological family. He sees oppression. And he's clearly deeply affected. Verse 12 says that he looked this way and that as he saw this poor slave being beaten and he sees no one. So he struck, struck down the Egyptian. He hid him in the sand. Now, there's a way of reading this story that I think is wrong and I, and I want to correct it for you. Moses, I don't think, was looking this way and that like, you know, maybe you've done when you've hoped that no one would notice what you're doing. Uh, we're actually uh, meant to understand something positive here, even though we might not say that we should imitate the violence that Moses uses. And let, me, let me back that up. Um, in the Bible, in Isaiah 59, there's one other place where this phrase, this exact phrase is used. But it's in the context of Yahweh looking around. There's an argument that's made that says, that says I think that that Isaiah 59 text is quoting this text on purpose. And it's Yahweh looking around at his people, seeing that there's injustice everywhere. And he's upset about sin. He's upset about the injustice. And he says, I looked and there was no one. So my own arm works salvation. So Yahweh stands up and says, when there's no one else to do the work of justice, I stand up because I am God. See, I think we're meant to see in this little episode that Moses is looking to see if anyone will stop what's happening. Will anyone intervene? Will anyone bring salvation for this poor Hebrew? He's going to get beaten to death. And there's no one. And Moses does something about it. Again, I don't know that we're supposed to, 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 to see it as a perfect example of justice, but we're meant to see that the text is telling us something positive about Moses' heart. That where Moses loves the oppressed. So where God loves the oppressed. Where God stands against the oppressor. Moses is showing the same character development of the heart of God. And so he steps up to work justice. And yet even in his actions, <laughs> it doesn't go exactly the way that Moses would have hoped. His own people, they're not that impressed with him. You look at verses 13 to 14, we see this. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? You got to think Moses would have thought that this slave, these guys of all people would have understood and accepted him and his efforts 
to work justice. That they would have responded positively. But Moses here, I think again, in a great foreshadowing of the rest of his life, is rejected by his own people. They struggle to receive him as a deliverer of any kind. And not only is he rejected, Moses learns Pharaoh is trying to kill him. And so he runs for his life in verses 14 to 15. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. So God's delivered the deliverer. Moses is showing forth the heart of justice of God, and yet now he's in Midian. <laughs> Far from Pharaoh's palace or his people in slavery. Midian was somewhere in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. So it's a long ways from Egypt. And it's here in this faraway place where we see another example, though, in Moses of the heart of justice of God. We see that in verses 17 to 19. God's doing something in him. God's forming something in him. Pay attention here. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came, they drew water and filled the troughs to water their flock, their father's flock. And the shepherds came, and they drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And you got to imagine that in that arid desert place, to be near a well is the difference between life and death. And Pharaoh's, you know, these, these shepherds come, these men come, and they, they drive away the daughters, right? The shepherds came and they drive them away. But Moses, he stood up and he saved them. And he watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. And he even drew water for us and watered the flock. See, again, in this episode, the weak are oppressed by the strong. And Moses sees it. And Moses acts and intercedes for the weak against the strong. He saves them in verse 17. He delivers them in the girl's words in verse 19. And what you need to know is that those two words, save and deliver, these are the words that God uses throughout the Hebrew Bible to refer to his salvation of his people. And again, we're meant to notice this because the author is here again showing that God is raising up Moses, a man with a heart of justice to work salvation and deliverance for God's people. And even here, there's a result because Reuel has to send the daughters back and go collect Moses to show some hospitality to the guy who saved your life, who saved the situation. And Moses is invited into the house. And he gets married and he settles down. And the story ends with the name of his and Zipporah's son. Verse 21. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. It's very interesting. Despite all that God's been doing to raise up Moses, the story doesn't end here in triumph, does it? I think Gershom is a... a Specific note, not of triumph. It means stranger. His name's his son, stranger, because he's realizing I'm a stranger. In fact, Moses is a stranger, not in one land, in two probably. Doesn't really belong in Midian. Doesn't really belong in Pharaoh's house. Doesn't really belong even with the Hebrews. They don't accept him. He's just like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm a stranger. <laughs> and we end this story at this point, and we look at it and we wonder, who is this guy? Is he the deliverer that God's raising up or is he not? Because he's in the wrong spot. 
right? He's in Midian, not Egypt. And the promised people are still in Egypt, not in Canaan. Like nothing's where it should be. And we're left wondering, what is God doing here? Does God see the suffering of his people or does he not? Is he at work through Moses or is he not? Christ the answer is yes. God is at work. Even though the slaves are still wondering if God sees their suffering. Even though the Egyptians are arrogant and believe that God will never act against their oppression. Even though Moses is wandering as a stranger in Midian, raising his family there, God is at work. He is at work. Look at our last point, our Savior, and read verses 23 to 24. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And the cry for rescue from slavery, it came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. These verses are left to the end of chapter two, but we're meant to read the first two chapters through this lens. Through four verbs of God seeing and hearing and knowing in preparation for acting. That he hears groaning, remembers covenant, sees the people, and that he knows. What is it that he knew? Know is an interesting word in Hebrew, and it often carries the connotation of, of intimacy, of deep relationship and understanding. I think what we're meant to see here is that, that God truly knows his people in all of this situation that's been happening. He knows their suffering. Never for one moment has he forgotten or not known their situation. Every tear of the mothers grieving for their children, God knows. The tears and the cries under the burdens of the slave masters, God knows. He sees. He has not forgotten his promises. See, he is the God, we're told in scripture, who inclines his ear toward us and toward our cries. I love that picture. Inclining is not a word we use very often in in day-to-day speech, but it means that God's leaning in. He doesn't pull back. God's the kind of God that leans into you, Christ City. It's his own character to listen to our cries, to hear us. And actually, he even sees our tears in Psalm 56 verse 8, uses a beautiful poetic imagery that God collects our tears in his bottle and his care for us. So if all that's true, if God sees and knows, remembers and hears, what on earth has God been doing all this time? He's been preparing a deliverer. He's been preparing everything for the salvation that he has planned. God had not forgotten them. He had gone far ahead of them. Just think about this story. He's been preparing everything the Israelites needed even before they realized they needed it. It's 400 years before this, before Israel knew that they would one day need a Moses, he had already 
saved the life of Levi and his family from starvation. He's already at work. Before Israel knew that they would need a priesthood one day to mediate a relationship with God, God prepared Moses the Levite and his brother Aaron who would head the Levitical line. God is doing everything they need far before they even know they need it. And now here in this story, while they suffered and cried out to God, he's delivered the deliverer from Pharaoh. He's adopted him into the king's palace. So significant. It would be difficult. I mean, it's not not impossible. God's the God who works miracles. It would be difficult for a slave who's merely a slave and didn't get an education to be able to lead a people who would become a new nation and organize them and write down laws and give them structure and help them and be used by God to teach them. But here's Moses getting the best education that you could get in the ancient world as God prepares a deliverer. Placing him out of harm's way in Midian even as he's waiting for the, this Pharaoh to die in the exact right moment to accomplish his salvation in the exodus of God's people from the land of Egypt. Chris said, you need to note this, that our God is a God who goes far ahead of us, preparing what we need even before we realize we need it. He's always worked this way. He always works this way. He's working this way in your lives right now. You can have confidence as we look to his word and remember how he's acted in the past to remember that he never forgets his plans and his purposes. And he always prepares what we need far before we even need, we know we need it. The Israelites, for example, I'll give you another one. They, they knew that they needed to deliver from Egypt, but they didn't yet comprehend the scope of what God was doing in the world in Egypt. Because even while God worked to raise up Moses, God's plans had already looked far down the line of history to a much greater deliverer than Moses. But he would only exist because there was a Moses. Because even while God raised up Moses, his plans were to raise up a greater savior to deliver us from Satan and from sin and from death. And over a thousand years after this story, he finally appeared, God himself, Yahweh in flesh, born as a baby, the savior for all of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 verse 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, at the right moment in human history, at the purpose according to which God was moving all of human history, when that moment came, God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman. God had always planned far down the road ahead of what we needed to send a savior. And think of the way that Jesus is like Moses, but so much greater than Moses, even in this story. Like Moses, Jesus grew up in the home of an adoptive father, in the home of Joseph. But unlike Moses, who was born a slave, but raised in a palace, Jesus chose to be born in squalor in the land of sin and death. His adoption wasn't heightening and elevating his position, but lowering it. He was a king who was willing to be born a slave in order to make us children of God. Like Moses, Jesus would be rejected by his own people. But unlike Moses, 
He would be resurrected as the king of kings and worshipped as the savior of every tribe and people and language under earth. Where Moses killed off the taskmaster and failed to bring true justice, the murder of Jesus Christ would bring justice to every person who trusts in him. His death counted for their death, for our death as we trust in him as the fair price for human sin before a holy God. And where Moses was saved in a basket, which is an ark through the waters, Jesus has become our ark of safety to the waters of God's judgment. As his blood pays the payment and the price for our sin and reconciles us to a holy God, where our sins are forgiven. Where Moses wandered as a stranger in foreign lands to lead Israel home to Canaan, Jesus came to wander in foreign lands to bring all of us, everyone who trusts in him, forever home with God for all of eternity. See, Jesus is a greater deliverer. And even here in the story of Moses' life and preparation for the deliverance in Egypt, God's at work, working towards the moment when Jesus would come even the darkest days of suffering. Now the question, of course, is did the average Israelite see all of that? No. No, they didn't see it. What they saw, it's like we talked about last week, they saw the fog come in and the horizons come in short and they just saw what's right in front of them, their suffering and their pain, just like we do in our own lives in our suffering and pain. And yet, they could look to the Bible at least later generations could when it was written. And they can know that God saw them, that God was with them, and that God was at work even in these situations. And that is meant to encourage you. As you look in your own life, because the same God who is at work then is at work today. This same God is the one that you serve. This is the same God that, that we worship every Sunday, that we can trust in. He's doing this work now. You know, Heather and I, um, we, spend a, a good, we spend a good part of yesterday morning um, doing something that we do annually. And it's a practice we began a couple of years ago where one time a year, um, we sit down and we write in a document and we look back over the year just to remember together what God has done in that year. I encourage you to do this same thing. When we look back and we kind of go month by month, we look at the old pictures we've taken on our phones to remember what's been going on. Not just to look at the good times, but to look at the hard times. To remember the prayers that we've prayed, the hardships that we've gone through. To remember the joys, to remember the answered prayers and the areas that we need to still keep praying. But there's a purpose to all this. Because we come to that moment with eyes full of faith, looking to see what God has done and is doing so we can give him thanks and praise for another year. What we've seen, and we were laughing about it yesterday as we were driving, <laughs> is that God does his best work in our suffering. <laughs> Always. He puts the rocks in the rock tumbler to get the rough edges off. <laughs> it's bumpy in there. But through those moments of difficulty, we can see as we look back with retrospect how he's filled us a little more with his love. Helped us to trust him a little more. He's confronted our sin, led us to repentance. He's helped us to lean in and to love and to care for others in a greater way. He's made us content. It's taught us to be thankful and satisfied in him and in him alone. And we look back with thanks 
And it affects the way that we read the Bible because it helps us to trust God's words in the Bible, to see that his promises are true. As we remember the gospel of Jesus, Jesus has already sent for our sins. God's loved us. We know that. We see that in the past. We hope in his promises in the future. And now we're looking and thinking about our lives in the context of what God is doing today. Christ City, I would encourage you to do the same. Take time this week. Look back on your life. Do it in the context of community if you're having trouble seeing it in your, your own life. Ask people questions. What's God been doing in my life? What do you see? To take time to thank him and to praise him. To remember that even in the darkest moments, he is at work. He is at work. In order that you can trust him and step forward in faith in today. To shine forth his glory and his character even in the difficult situation that you're in right now. Can I pray for you? God, we come to you thankful for your incredible intention and care, for your commitment and loyalty and love towards us. God, God for, for those that know you, I pray that they would be strengthened and filled with courage to keep stepping today in more steps of obedience, um, to have hearts that are full of faith to see you in your work in their lives, even in, when they're discouraged. Father, I pray for those that have not yet met you this morning. I pray that they would see through this text, see the glimmers of your character that we've looked at, see who you are in the person of Jesus Christ, and that you would even now be drawing them to trust in Jesus, to be forgiven of their sin, to admit before you, God, I am a sinner. I have messed things up and I need your forgiveness. Would you save me? And God, I pray that you would meet them in this moment and give them life. And we look to you now and we ask that you bless us as we continue to worship you in Jesus' name, amen.